It is a great joy to welcome you once again to our midweek fellowship and Bible study time. Great to get together with God's people, praying that this will be an oasis in the middle of your week where you will find refreshing and strength and encouragement and help and blessing in the singing and the study of God's Word. Prayer, please, Pastor Kelly. All right, let's bow forward to prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for your goodness. We thank you that we have the electricity and the ability to minister and be an encouragement and blessing to our church family and to others that are gathered with us to worship the Lord and learn from his word. I pray that you'll help and bless us. We pray for Pastor Dan that you'll bless and guide him as he teaches your word and fill him with your Holy Spirit and bless him. And we pray for, again, our doctors and nurses and the first responders and the farmers and the factory workers and all those that are uh, helping us get through this time of COVID that are bravely working and doing the things they need to do. We pray for our firemen uh, and firewomen down in Southern California and Northern California that are fighting the fires. We pray for our police officers and all those that are serving us and trying to help people during this very trying time. Now bless us as we study your word and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read scripture tonight that's going to relate, of course, to our Bible study, and it has to do with those who serve in the local church as pastors and deacons. In this text, King James uses the word bishop, New American Standard uses the more literal uh, translation of the Greek word in overseer or supervisor, mm -hmm. if you please. And uh, so the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy the kind of people that are needed for effective ministry in the local church. Reading out of 1 Timothy chapter number 3, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, that would be the pastor, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, Able or capable of teaching, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, if they are beyond reproach. Women, or the word here may be deaconesses, must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of one wife and good managers of their children and of their own households. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Mm -hmm. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of God, and wonderful we know that the voice of God can be heard personally in our own ears through his word. Amen. I love to read about the church and what God's intention is for it. And uh, thank you, Pastor, for, for speaking about those offices and the importance of that pillar and that, that ground of truth that our church is. We're continuing our study tonight in the book written by my friend Dean Taylor, uh, The uh, Thriving Church. It's talking about how a church can grow, and it's not necessarily in numbers, it's in spirit, and it's in many different ways. Unity is one that we're going to look at tonight, and uh, we want to... Uh, Go in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, and that's kind of going to be the main uh, area that we're going to be in as we go throughout this study, and, uh, and I hope that you'll make yourself very familiar with it, because my goal in this whole study is to help our church become all it should be, and if you're from another church, to help you become all that you can be in your local church, to help your church thrive uh, where God has placed you. In Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, and then we'll skip down to verse 11 to the end of the chapter. And it ties in nicely with what Pastor has already read. In Ephesians chapter 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then down to verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Again, this is all about helping your church thrive or to grow, and this is what we want in our own church. And tonight we're going to look at a topic that sounds off the top, but maybe it's a little negative, but the, it's lesson number two, it's chapter two in my friend Dean's book, on treating a sick body. Now throughout the whole study, we're going to be looking at basically four questions that are going to keep popping up, and we're going to focus on the last two of these four questions uh, that uh, tonight that, that, that are very helpful to us to understand how we can be part of a thriving church. 
Number one, the four question is what is growth? And we'll we talked a little bit about that last week. We'll talk more about that down the road. What causes growth? And we'll talk about that as well. And uh, then, but tonight we're going to be focusing on number three and four. Am I helping or hindering my church's growth? And how can I help my church? Uh, how, how can I help make my church a growing body? Those are things that we're trying to, to look at tonight. You see, you must realize that a church can only grow and thrive as its individual members are growing and thriving. You need to be growing in the Lord before you expect your church to be growing and thriving. And so remember now, we, we all have a part in this thing. We all have special gifts that God has given. We're just one part of a unified body called the local church. And we all need to be carrying part of the load to accomplish the task. Now, do you remember the last time that you were sick or injured? I do. It wasn't long ago. I had COVID. And for a long time, I just had to just lay down. I couldn't do anything that I wanted to do. When we're sick, our bodies are unable to really function properly. And, uh, and we want to do everything that we can to, to focus on, on how to become healthy again. You know, there's a will to do what's right. I remember being sick and laying in my bed thinking, I have things I want to do. I, I don't want to be laying here. I don't want to be feeling the way I am. But there just was no strength to do it. It was just impossible. Our minds can push us forward, but our bodies sometimes put us, uh, keep us from moving along. A broken bone, a fever, the stomach flu, a headache, or a skin rash becomes the dominant thought of our, of our entire body. Uh, get up, ever get up in the middle of the night and have to take a, a walk down the hall and, and, and then you stub that little toe at the end of your foot and, and all you can think about after that is jumping up and down and making that pain quit. We just want relief when we go through these times of sickness and these times of injury. That dis disrupts our whole life. And it's the same way it is with the local church. And when we have somebody in the church who's not doing well, uh, somebody in the church who's not growing and thriving. That person becomes the focus of a church when people are aware of it and try to help that person to get back on their feet so that they can continue to work in the church and help that church grow to become everything that God wants it to be. Now remember, growth takes place in a number of ways. It takes place in numbers sometimes. Uh, uh, an infant church has to grow to a certain size before it can have a building and a place to meet and that sort of thing and afford those things. Maybe afford a full-time pastor. A lot of things have to happen with numbers that way. But then there also has to be within the church, even in those infant stages, uh, a growth in maturity and a growth in understanding and obedience to the scriptures, a growth in love for one another. And, uh, and an increased passion to win the loss. The church is not going to grow in any way without that. We need to have those new baby Christians in our church. And there's other ways that we will touch on in this study and in other studies throughout the next few weeks. A growing church is a church that is striving at it is, as it is accomplishing the will of God. And Jesus has told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We're to baptize them and we're to make disciples of all nations and we're to train them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, we saw uh, the word one re uh, repeated many, many times. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. Uh, it, it's indicating uh, an unchanging truth. It's indicating that there is something that is unified about this. 
There is one body and one spirit. Also, there is one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's indicating that there are some truths that are the only truth and there's no other way you can look at it. And there's some things that just are not going to change. At the front of that whole list of all these ones, and we can get to those other things at another time, but at the beginning of all of those ones, there's this, there's this phrase, one body. And it's indicating that there's a uniqueness about this body, the body of Christ. There's only one like it. It's called a church. And Jesus Christ died for it so that it could be made up of, of born-again, baptized believers who are unified together for, to accomplish the will of God in, in a specific area. There's only one body of Christ which is made up of those who are truly born again. And that body is also one in unity. It has to work together just as your body has to all be going in the same direction all the time. You can't have one leg going one way and the other leg going the other way and your hands up in the air while you're trying to move forward. It just doesn't work that way. Everything has to go in the same direction. It fits, functions together as one unit to accomplish a common goal. And that's what the church is supposed to be doing. For the body of Christ to grow, it must function together in unity. That's a huge thing. And unified around the truth of God's word. You know, when we're healthy, we don't really even think about it. We just hop out of bed and we go about our task and we really don't even think too much about our body. Everything's just working the way it's supposed to work. I think I remember those days when I was a lot younger. As I get older, mm -hmm. it's, it's harder and harder to feel the same way. Mm -hmm. But when every part is working properly and in coordination with the other parts of the body, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, that's our natural state. That's the way we were created. That's the way uh, that we're, things are supposed to go. But once we have this sickness, whether it's a pain in our side or a stubbed toe or a, or a, or a broken fingernail even, everything comes to a stop to tend to that issue that is causing pain and, and a struggle. So when a local church body has a sick or injured because is sick or injured because somebody has fallen into sin or, or walked away from the Lord or is at odds with another church member, uh, the church needs to kind of come to a stop and try to put it put it put a, a, an end to that and try to try to focus on that and to bring healing and help to that. Everyone in the church who knows about that situation tends to focus on, on that. And it keeps us from accomplishing everything else that God wants us to do. It's hard to evangelize while you're trying to tend to a sick church member or a, or a, a church member who's out of sorts. It's really hard to, uh, to preach uh, and to focus on the preaching of the word when you know you've got somebody who's angry with you while you're, while you're trying to prepare sermons and, uh, or teach a Sunday school lesson. The Apostle Paul gives us some guidance regarding how we can make those repairs and how we can tend to the sick in our church to a certain extent, the sick as far as spiritual sickness goes. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk, worthy, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And he describes some character traits that are needed to be able to walk in that way, to walk unified, to walk worthy of what we've been called to. He talks about humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance and diligence to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
A church that is growing is a church that is thriving and functioning together and all the members are in agreement with where this church should be going. All of its members are working together for the glory of God and the good of the people who are involved in the church. And that takes a lot of work. It takes some coordination. It takes, uh, it takes uh, some uh, understanding of what it is that we're supposed to be doing. Well, let's go on and define now unity. What is unity? Uh, when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he was express, expressing the idea of unity when he used pronouns like I and you. He said, they, we know each other. He said in Ephesians 4.1, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. I know you. I want to talk to you. I, want, I need your attention. You need to understand some things. Now, he could do that because he had a connection with them. I can't go to the average person on the street and say, I need to talk to you. And they look at me and say, who are you? Why would I want to talk to you? But Paul had built this relationship with these people so that he had earned the right and earned the opportunity to impact them for the Lord. They, they belonged together. Paul and this church fit together. He had preached to them. He had founded their church. And he knew them and they knew him. They had heard and accepted his message as from God as uh, the basis for their entire church when it was founded. And now they're separated by many miles. There's about 1,200 miles between them. Paul's writing this, this letter to the church at Ephesus from a Roman prison cell. He's in Rome and they're far, 1,200 miles east of him in the, in the city of Ephesus. And he didn't write that, that, building, that letter to a building. He wrote that letter to people. We don't write letters to buildings. You know, so many people think of churches. We, we, live, uh, we live at the church, you know, and, and, and we live at, uh, on, on up what they call uh, Cathedral Hill. There are churches all around us. And people look at those buildings as they, those are churches. Well, I live in the church building, and I can tell you, my wife and I have often said, while we haven't been having church, this is, boy, this is just a big empty building. Yeah. The church is not there. The church is right now online, and uh, we're spread out all over the place. I'm looking forward to the day when we can be once again together. Uh, but the church is a, is a group of people who are united together for the, for the cause of the gospel. Dean Taylor writes, when you started attending your church, you did not just arrive at a place on the map or enter a building. You gathered with a group of people. Going to church equals assembling, worshiping, growing, and uniting with other people. It's not the building. The church is you and me as we assemble together for the glory of God. That's why we, as the pastors of the church, are working so hard to do everything we can to provide these live stream services and the Zoom meetings where we can talk back and forth. This live stream is just us talking to you. and I don't see you. All I see is a little circle on the front of a camera. But I know you're back there. I hope some of you are. And uh, there's a few people sitting behind the camera that I can see uh, in my peripheral vision. But, but that's not the same. We're not united together. We're not all together. We work very hard. The Zoom meetings are good because we can talk back and forth and tell a few jokes and share prayer requests and praises of what God is doing. But it's not the same as assembling together. 
you know, we're having these small group men's meetings and small group women's meetings, and we're trying to do everything we can to comply and do things right, but those are special. Those have become very special to us because we actually see another human being. Might be behind a mask, but they're there, and we can talk to one another. We can pray together, and we can enjoy worshiping the Lord and, and fellowshipping together. You know, the church, again, is not the building that started at Post and Steiner many years ago and then moved up to Gary and Franklin. It is, it is the people that are in that building united around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right now, we're not really functioning as a healthy church. It's not our fault. It's COVID-19 has come in and government regulations have come in. And just like it's not your fault when you stub your toe, it has, it's an accident. It's something you can't control. But it's a reality that we're not functioning as we should be as a local church. A healthy church is not just about doing the things that we're doing right now, making phone calls, trying to keep in contact that way, having live stream services, having, having Zoom meetings, having small group fellowships. It's about being together. It's, it's about uniting in heart and mind, finding common ground about what we believe and working together for the cause of Christ. The gospel is what brought Paul, a Jew, into unity with the Ephesian believers who were primarily Gentiles. Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1, he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of, the, of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. I like what Dean Taylor wrote about that. And if you've studied church history, you understand some things. The church in Ephesus brought two vastly different groups of people together. No two groups of people were more divided than these in the first century Roman Empire. But, <clears throat> excuse me, through Christ, the believers who belonged to these two hostile people groups, Jews didn't like Gentiles, Gentiles didn't like Jews, but they were united into one new group, the church. Do you see the value of this? The attitudes toward one another had to be totally transformed from what they were before being saved. They've been called together unto salvation through Jesus Christ and growth in the Word of God. A one-body relationship as a local church. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, the Apostle Paul looked at these wrote to these people and said, You are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer at odds with one another. You are still now on the same team now. You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling uh, of God in the Spirit. You know, I love the fact that Hamilton Square Baptist Church is a multiracial, international church congregation. We have people who speak different languages, they come from different cultures, uh, they look differently, with different skin tones, different hairstyles, sometimes different clothing styles. One of my favorite memories when I first visited the church many years ago was to see uh, a wealthy lady sitting on the front row next to a man that I believe was saved under a bridge. And uh, they were different colors and they were quite different in their economic spectrum. But they were both singing together well. The one man wasn't singing. He just raised his hand because he didn't, couldn't carry a tune. But they were trying to worship together, sitting side by side from vastly different places in the world and different positions in the world. That's what it is like when a church is healthy. There is unity among people who are vastly different. 
when people who look different, talk differently, live in different income brackets, come from different family backgrounds, different age groups, different genders, and have a multitude of personalities, all unite for the glory of God. It is a beautiful thing. In Psalm 133, 1, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. That's a healthy church. A miraculous transformation has taken place when people unite like that. They used to look at each other as being, you're weird. And, uh, and, and that other person looked at them and said, you're weird. And, but now we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we find commonality at the cross. Dean Taylor says, your church brings you together with people you would never have otherwise met or become friends with. And that's true. I can't wait till we can get back together as a local church. But sadly, there are churches, and I have been in some, where people do gather in the same building, and they walk into the same auditorium, and they sit sort of next to each other. Sometimes they avoid each other. They're in the same building, in the same space, but there's not really unity there. Dean Taylor gives this little, uh, little mathematical equation that says togetherness, and then it's got the equal sign crossed out, unity. In other words, togetherness does not necessarily equal unity. I remember reading many years ago, and there's a picture there in your notes about, two bo about some boys who were very cruel, and they tied two cats together by their tail and hung them over a signpost and let them fight it out. A lot of times uh, there was there was some there was some togetherness there, but there wasn't a whole lot of unity. Uh, they were fighting and and carrying on, and sometimes that happens in a local church. Let's go to the second point. We've defined unity. It is gather, gathering together, uniting together for the common purpose of serving the Lord and 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 bringing other people to know Him. And then, secondly, we have this desiring unity. You know, like those poor cats at, uh, over the signpost. Uh, some people, even Christian people, are proud and feel the need to always win an argument, and, and they always want to come out on top, and there's, there's fighting that goes on. You know, that's pride, and it's easy, uh, but humility takes a lot of work. Uh, Paul saw division in the Ephesian church, and he implored them as individuals to work toward unity. Work toward unity. You have to learn how to make this happen. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, he says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of, of the calling with which you've been called, with humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, why would Paul even have to say that? Because it's not always that way in a church. Because despite the fact that Christians have been born again, and they're children of God, it doesn't mean that they stop having a sin nature. And sometimes sin and pride and anger and other things, self-centeredness and all these things gather, do crop up and, and cause problems in a church. In short, we're not always really welcoming and we're not always really loving. So this is why he implored, strongly encouraged, he, he, he begged of them, urged them, to work together towards that unified relationship within a church with fellow believers. Dean Taylor said, We need to acknowledge we are capable of hindering unity in the church by our attitudes towards other people. Where there is disunity, a church body is sick, and it needs to be dealt with. Scripture reminds us of the need to work at church unity. 
by obeying the scriptures. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, he says, solemnly charge, or get serious about this thing, Char- solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. You talk about sick. Gangrene is pretty sick. And when our words are at odds with each other, and we're not telling the truth, and we're getting into our flesh, we can bring all sorts of illness and sickness to a church. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5-9, through 9, Peter writes, Applying all diligence in your faith, Supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing, or growing, or thriving, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things... Uh, lacks these qualities, is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. That's a sick Christian. That's someone who's not living up to what God wants him to live up to. Unity does not happen by itself. In fact, it tends to deteriorate. But we must put effort into cultivating, maintaining, and protecting unity. Are you personally willing to do what it takes to bring unity to your church? Are you personally willing to do what it takes for you to get along with some who are different than you are? Have you taken an honest look at yourself to see if maybe there's something you need to change so that you can become more effective in helping with the, lo- the, with the unity in, in a local church? Well, let's move on to a third point today. A discipline for unity. That's something else we need. We've defined it. We've had a desire for it, and now we see that it takes some discipline to make this happen. In our main text, again, we see some elements. We've read them over again, but let's look at them again, see if you can see it. We're going to look at one in particular right now. It says, I think it's in verse 2, with all humility. Humility. King James, I think, says lowliness is the word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 gives us a little more of an understanding of that. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Humility begins in your mind. It begins in your understanding of who you are and who other people are and who God is and how you fit into all of that picture. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, which is our natural tendency, but also for the interests of others. We all need a realistic view of ourselves. Now that doesn't mean that we're beating up on ourselves and acting like Eeyore in the in the Winnie the Pooh series. I've met a few people like that, and every time you talk to them, no matter what you say to them, they're always, oh, I'm not no good, I'm terrible, I'm no good. No, God has given you a talent and recognize who you are and what your contribution is, but don't elevate yourself above somebody else. Recognize who you are and use that. Why? Because God gave that ability and that talent and that personality to you. 
and so that you can use it for the good of the entire body. Humility is viewing yourself as you really are, rather than an inflated, prideful estimation of yourself. I'm better than that. I, I could never clean a toilet. No, all of us should be able to do that if that's what God requires of us. But then we also should be willing to use our talents the best way we possibly can. If you think the church is about you, let me remind you, it's not. It's about Jesus Christ. And it's about bringing God's people together in His service. So we need to start off with this idea of humility. And then we want to look at this thing called meekness or gentleness. Meekness. Ephesians chapter 1, or chapter 4, I think it's two or th verse 2 or 3, talks about gentleness or meekness. You've heard someone say, meekness is not weakness, and that's true. But it is basically strength under control. Have you ever considered how much strength it takes to be gentle? You, never, you ever see, a, you ever see a, a, a young groom try to pick up his bride and carry her across the threshold into that, uh, that room on their honeymoon? And you see funny videos sometimes of the groom falling over or the bride's heavier than he thought. And, oh, it's a terrible mess. It takes strength to be gentle. Otherwise, you can create quite a mess. Meekness is strength under control like a trained elephant. Chris and I went years ago to Thailand, and, and we, we rode on the back of an elephant. And we learned the story of how that elephant began to be trained. And we saw where they had taken that elephant when it was a young elephant and put him with a young boy. And, they, and the elephants played together. And they were kind of paired together for life. For elephants have a, a long lifespan, just as we do. And the, 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 the elephant and the, I think they call him a tuk-tuk, uh, that was the... Uh, Mahout. Mahout. That's what it was. Chris is back there. She's telling me straight now. Tuk Tuk's one of those three-wheeled motorcycles you ride around in. But a Mahout. And the Mahout tells the elephant what to do. And we saw this wrinkled up old man with leather skin walking in front of this gigantic elephant. We were on his back and he could say anything he wanted to and that elephant would do that, whatever he told him to do. Why? Because they had been joined together and that elephant had learned to control his strength by submitting himself to that mahout, that man who was uh, bound to him for life. And now they're both old, the elephant and the young man, but they're still strong enough to accomplish something together because the elephant was willing to submit and get his strength under control of the mahout. In the same way, the longer we walk with the Lord, the more we desire to please Him and we submit ourselves to Him and to His Word. We submit ourselves to people in the church who are over us. I'm an associate pastor. I submit myself to the leadership of my pastor. The other people in the church, we all submit ourselves to people who are placed in authority over us. And when we do that, we have meekness and there's peace and there's, a, there, there's unity and we're able to accomplish some things together for the Lord. For the Lord. You may have a great talent, but if you're not willing to submit that to authority, it can be a dangerous thing. Thirdly, let's look at long-suffering endurance. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4. He calls it patience. Uh, so this is a quality that, uh, that every parent has to develop, or they're just going to be a terrible parent. Because babies cry in the middle of the night, and they need their diaper changed in the middle of the night, and it seems like they do the most inconvenient things at the wrong time. You get all dressed up for church, and then you get this little, puddle, little pile of white stuff all over the front of your outfit. 
and and you have to be patient and loving to that child no matter what happens with and uh, and then toddlers as they grow up they have temper tantrums and they tend to pull on things and knock things down pull tablecloths off tables and everything else that goes down with them and they're not doing anything out of meanness but it just happens because they're not quite mature and strong enough and we need to learn to be be patient with other young Christians and uh, young believers who are within our church and we need to be long-suffering and endure with them to help them to come on the next step of spiritual in their spiritual walk. Dean Taylor writes this, A long-suffering person does not react, speak impulsively, blow up, or impose harsh ultimatums or sharp demands on others. The church member who is long-suffering with others is patient, willing to listen to explanations, to give others space to grow, and to get the whole story before passing judgment. Ultimately, long-suffering reflects a deep commitment to others that compels you to stay in rather than bail out of a relationship. Oh, we need that in a local church. Patience is one of the evidences the Holy Spirit's working in a believer's spiritual path to maturity. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 talks about the fruits of, fruit of the Spirit, and one of those qualities is patience. Patient endurance drives us to pray for somebody who's maybe a little bit irritating to us or maybe not where we would like to see them be rather than lashing out against them uh, with, with people who we, with whom we have a disagreement or see a failure in. Colossians chapter 1 talks about the fact that we are to be attaining a steadfastness and a patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father for other people in our church who are a part of the body that he has given to us. Patient long-suffering is a characteristic of God, which we should strive to emulate. And on page 10 in your notes, I've given several verses that describe who our God is. Think about him. He is the creator of it all. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise one. And yet he shows grace and long-suffering and patience to you and me, every day. Aren't you glad? In Exodus chapter 34 verse 6, the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. In Psalm 86 verse 15, he said, it says, you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. In Romans chapter 2 verse 4, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Aren't you glad for a kind and loving God? First Timothy chapter 1 verse 16, Paul said, I found mercy. We know what Paul was like before he was saved. He was quite the rabble-rouser. He was after Christians. He was trying to jail them and stop them and do everything he could to keep the, the message of the gospel from going forward. But God got a hold of him and he says, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance.
That's patience. That's love. That's grace and mercy. If God can be that way, the holy God of the universe, the holy God of heaven, the one who does no sin, can look down at you and me with patience and grace and offer salvation to us. How much more should we offer grace to fellow sinners? In Romans chapter 12, verses 18 to 12, it says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Leave the vengeance to God. And you can look at those verses. It says at the end of those verses, though, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We should be doing everything that we can to be a meek person, patient with other believers, our strength under control, submitted to the Lord for the unity and the goodness of the local church and the glory of God. Loving tolerance is another uh, quality that is found in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's go back there. It talks about humility and gentleness and patience and then showing tolerance for one another in love. Tolerance. We need to understand that people are sinners and they're making progress. Patience and long-suffering kind of has a negative kind of a, okay, I will put up with this idea. But this idea of tolerance is I'm actively trying to help this person along. I'm trying to help this person. It's a positive and an active thing. The King James says, bearing with one another in love. You get the idea that you're helping them carry the load as they're growing in their walk with the Lord. There's an aggressiveness about this thing. There's, an, there's, a, there's a, a, a desire to really help this person along and not just put up with them. There's a little book that we had in the church lobby. I think most of them are gone. and I picked up a few of them and just set them out there. And it's called How, How to Walk into Church. You know, sometimes we tend to go into church and we, 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 we sit in our normal spot. We get into our comfort zone and we look for those people that we're most familiar with and, and, uh, and we kind of gather there. I see that sometimes when we do lunch and mingle at the church when we were doing that. And if it's, it's, it's kind of funny when you stand in the pulpit, you can look out and you know almost the assigned seats that people seem to have in the auditorium. You know where they're going to be. And because we just are creatures of comfort and creatures of habit, and we just go with what we know and go with what's familiar to us. But we need to be actively looking for other people and tolerating people that maybe sometimes are a little different than us so that we can help them uh, grow in the things of the Lord. In that book, uh, Tony Payne wrote, in, in this book, How to Walk into Church, he wrote, this can be quite a mind shift, but it's a vital one. We come to church not only to be loved and blessed by God, but also to love and bless others around us. We come not to spectate or consume, nor even to have our own personal encounter with God. We come to love and to serve. This focus on loving and serving and encouraging those around us is a prominent theme in the Bible's teaching about our role at church. God has something important for us to do, in particular someone he wants us to sit next to, to talk with, to listen to, to pray for, and to encourage. <clears throat> now we need to be honest here for a minute. All of us know somebody in the church is kind of irritating to us. Uh, they smell funny. They Maybe they sing off-key. Uh, maybe they dress differently than you do. You know they're from a different different country, or uh, they, 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 there's just something different about them, and it just you're just not comfortable, naturally comfortable around them. Sometimes they have a personality that annoys you. We all have to work at this. I know I do. 
And when, when sometimes they'll share a, a long prayer request or a praise, and they go on and on, and, and, and there's a tendency sometimes to go, oh my goodness, when are they going to stop? And, uh, and, and because you're not the focus anymore, they are. I've actually heard people say in the church, thankfully not in our church, we don't need people like that in our church. Oh, how wrong that is. Stop looking down your nose at people. Relationships in the body of Christ are important to the health of a local church. Just like all of our fingers have to work together and our toes have to work together and all of our insides that nobody wants to look at has to work together for our body to be healthy. We need all these parts of our local church. We do need each other. Imagine where you would be if the Lord Jesus looked at you as you were as a sinner and said, I want nothing to do with him or her. Imagine that. Imagine you would never have been able to be saved in the first place. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10 says, While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, yet sinners, Christ died for us. I always love that verse. Much more than having been now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from, wrath of, by, from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now if God can reach down from his holy heaven to a sinner like you and a sinner like me, who would be annoying and obnoxious and vile and die in our place to save us from our sins. Don't you think that you can reach out to someone who annoys you a little bit or smells a little bit different or sings off-key and be a blessing to them? Sure you can. Be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Dean Taylor writes this, If you dream of a church where the pastors programs, preaching, and all the people please you, you're self-centered and prideful, and you'll never find a church that makes you happy. In fact, you should approach every gathering of the church with the assumption that you're going to be annoyed by someone or something. Seriously, yes, because the church is a gathering of imperfect people of whom you are one. Make up your mind. You're going to bear with one another and be thankful that other people are putting up with you. Now in conclusion, what do you think is more important to a growing church? Beliefs or relationships? Many in our circles would place beliefs above relationships, and truth does indeed matter. I'm not denying that at all. We must stand for the fundamentals of the faith that's found in the Holy Scriptures. There's only unity when you unify around a great truth. In Jude chapter 1 verses 3 and 4, it says, Beloved, while I was making every, every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to, you, appeal, uh, write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You can't unify with people like that who don't believe the same things. But there are people who believe the same things and yet may not have grasped everything that you know, or maybe you haven't grasped everything that they know. 
And we need to be working together because in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, it reminds us that there's truth. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were also called, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is truth that is undeniable and it cannot be changed. And there's only one way to heaven and all of those things that we're talking about. Truth cannot be denied. But in the verses preceding that, he also says... I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk worthy in a walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Pastor puts it this way in his series on fundamentalism. He talks about he talks about the the, the demands for separation from sin, so that you can be true to the gospel, true to the Word of God. But he also talks about the commands of love and unity. And this is what we're talking about. A healthy church is not about truth or relationships. It's about truth and relationships. A relationships built around truth. A gathering of people without a doctrinal foundation is not a church. But neither can there be a church without people who are in a relationship with one another. And we have to work at this sort of thing. Now we're in a very strange time as a church. You all are in your living rooms, sitting on a couch, and we're all spread out all over the place. But hopefully, very soon, we're going to be able to find a way to get back together. And the pastors and the deacons and the deaconesses, the leaders of our church are working towards this, try to find a way, way to go about this in a way that will also comply with what we're allowed to do as citizens of San Francisco and California and the United States. But you pray for us. We're trying to find a way to do this. And uh, we, when, when we do get together, there's going to be all sorts of opinions. There's going to be all sorts of ideas on how this should be done. And, uh, and But we need to approach this in a godly fashion so that we can once again be a healthy, united church body. We need to approach the decisions, as Ephesians says in verses 1 through 3, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then we can regather as a healthy, unified church body. Pray towards that end. May God grant us the wisdom to know how to go about doing this for His glory and for the good of everyone that's involved. Let's close with a word of prayer. And I'll ask you to meditate. Think on these things. If you get the notes, look at them again and see if there's something there that maybe you need to change or pray about for the sake of someone else in the unity of our church. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have uh, instruction on how we are to live. And Lord, we pray that you help us to examine ourselves to see if we have those qualities of humility and gentleness and long-suffering and care meekness that's needed. Lord, help us to be what you would have us to be so that we can contribute to the health of our local church. And if someone doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior, help them to come to that first point, that one thing that's so important to them before they can even become a part of a local church, that point of salvation in Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.